Let's pray. Gracious God, we come to you understanding that in the midst of our unrighteousness, you are righteous. In the midst of our weakness, you are our strength. When at times it seems as if all that is around us is insecure and faltering, you are our confidence. You are our, our security. Lord, we thank you that you have spoken to us in this moment, that your spirit dwells in us. We want to hear from you, God, so open your word as we continue to worship you. We, your servants, are listening. Speak, Lord Jesus, speak. It's in your name we pray. You have a copy of God's Word. I'm going to invite you to turn with me this morning to James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11 this morning. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. What does it look like to cultivate patience in an impatient world? What does it look like to cultivate patience in an impatient world? A name of a famous preacher that oftentimes is lost in our 21st century context is the name of Philip Brooks. I don't know if you know that name. Philip Brooks, 19th century Boston, uh, for much of his ministry there, he was visibly upset one day when one of his parishioners came in contact with him and the church member said, Mr. Brooks, what's the matter? And Phillips Brooks' response to his church member was this, the trouble is that I am in a hurry, but God isn't. The trouble is that I am in a hurry, but God isn't. Have you, ever, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever been in the shoes of Philip Brooks where your timeline doesn't seem to sync with God's timeline? Now, I, I know pietistically, I, I know that you would say with your mouth that God's timing is perfect, but there is one thing to know that cognitively. There's another thing to actually live that out, trusting in God's perfect timeline. Have you ever felt as if uh, that, that God's timeline wasn't synced with your time and you're, you are threatened or at least tempted to impatience in the midst of your circumstances? Have you ever felt the impatience, the temptation to impatience where you're waiting for the doors of job opportunities to w open and, and there's just not any clarity of what door you should walk in or you're waiting for the doors of, of, of school, whether it be graduate school or whether it be where you're going to spend the next four years in your undergrad and you're, you're waiting for the clarity of that, but there just seems to be opportunities and doors that seem to be shutting before you or maybe you are, are further down the road of life and you, you seem to uh, be going down the, the road of dead-end relationships and you're, you're longing for God to, to bring some security and you're longing for God to, to bring that, that man or that woman and, into your life and you're praying for that and, and you know that God's timing is perfect but there seems to be just an impatience that threatens to, to under, you know, just throw you for a loop in, in, in many ways. Maybe you're a parent here and you've been longing for God to bring that prodigal son or daughter home and, and they seem not to be headed back from a foreign land. They, you, you don't see their, their, uh, their countenance coming to you with their head down in repentance. I mean, you're long, 
longing for that, but, but they seem to be enjoying the foreign land. Have you ever felt tempted to uh, wonder, is God's perfect timing actually ever going to come about in your life? In James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, last week, we talked about how there were wealthy non-Christians who through their misuse of wealth, ill-gotten gain of their wealth, they, they actually had some repercussions for the Christians who were la- largely poverty-stricken, kind of lower socioeconomic level of that first century world. So what they did actually had uh, real repercussions for these believers. And so James was encouraging them, that understanding that, that God would judge them for their actions. Well, the question then becomes, well, what do we do in the meantime? What do we do while we're still actually living here and we're still feeling the actual anguish and difficulty because of these ungodly decisions that, that we are having to live in the midst of? And James tells us, what do we do in the meantime? What do we do when we're waiting on God's perfect timing? James chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient Therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, you have, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is what? Compassionate and merciful. So one theme through these five verses. Notice again in your copy of God's Word, patience is mentioned twice in verse 7. It's mentioned in verse 8. It's mentioned in verse 10. Notice these synonyms here. I mean, there is a nuance between steadfastness and being steadfast and patience. But there is in the same family here, we have steadfast and steadfastness. Verse 11 here. Uh, five reference here, references here in these five verses to patience. The, the theme that James wants us to be able to hear as we wait on God's perfect timing is that we are called to trust God. We are called to cultivate patience even in the midst of difficult circumstances, trusting his sovereign timing to be good and pleasing in your life and in my life. And and to that end, he gives us three examples. To that end, he gives us three examples, two from the Old Testament, one from just observation in that first century world, two examples to, to gird our hearts to trust him in the midst of whatever we might be facing. And the first portrait we discover is the portrait of a patient farmer. Again, look in verses 7 through 9. The historical context is far removed from the majority of our lives in this room here in the 21st century. It's an agrarian scene. James mentions what everybody in that world would have known and known by heart. They would have lived in the midst of it, a farmer, especially in this kind of small town, small operation kind of thing that James would, uh, James's audience would have been very familiar with. The farmer plants limited amounts of seed. He works the land. The family works the land. 
but that farmer is dependent upon something that he cannot provide. The early and the late rain is what James mentions. The early rain in the ancient Near Eastern world would have come in October or November. It would have softened the brick hard soil that he couldn't plow without that early rain. The seed couldn't germinate without that early rain. But not only does he need the early rain, but he needs the, the late rain also. The late rain would have come in March or April, and without it, the crop would have been stunted. It would have been non-existent. So here's this farmer who is completely dependent throughout all of, of his operation for his family's sustenance. He must have what he cannot in his own strength, in his own will, bring about. He, he can't bring the early rain in his strength. He can't bring the late rain in his strength. So he is totally dependent upon the weather which is outside of his control. And what does this farmer teach us about patience in the midst of your circumstances and, and my circumstances? The example of this farmer is, is this truth that true patience is found in this deep abiding trust in God's sovereign reign in the midst of good times or difficult times. That patience is, is cultivated and it is found in this deep abiding trust in God's sovereign reign in the midst of all of our circumstances. And this is so countercultural in our society. And what James is talking about, not just the references to farmers and the early rain and the, the late rain, but the principle that he's talking about, it is foreign to us inside the church as it is foreign to our society outside of the church. What James is talking about here, while it might seem very commonplace to us, I think it's important for us to understand the cultural streams that we're all swept up in that, that runs counter to what James is saying here because we live in a day and age where our culture has given us instantaneous access to many of the consumer goods that are around us. You remember 30 years ago? If you wanted to watch a movie without going to the movies, if you wanted to watch a movie at home 30 years ago, you would get in your vehicle and you would drive to Blockbuster or you would drive to the, uh, you know, the equivalent of that and you would walk into that place and you, you, would, you would want to find Rocky IV. So let's just imagine you know, a, a modern cinema classic, Rocket, Rocky IV, and you would walk in there and you would have four VHS copies and you would just hope that someone hadn't checked them out. You would see the cover of it, and you would just hope that the actual uh, VHS was, was behind that. And, and that's how we got it. Now, last, it wasn't last night, but it was the, the night before last. We had an evening at the house, and so we want to um, you know, give our kids the most amazing movies ever made. And so we, we are uh, in a... Daniel LaRusso moment right now. Johnny Lawrence, sweep the leg, Johnny. You, you, you know what we're talking about, Karate Kid? So we, we watched Karate Kid Chapter 2, not Chapter 2, that's, uh, that's kind of a uh, Karate Kid Part 2 Friday night. So uh, you remember Karate Kid? I mean, we, we, we had Daniel LaRusso on the plane with Mr. Miyagi going to Okinawa. We, we, we were able to do all of that in the matter of 15 seconds just searching on our television, pressing click, saying, 
yes, we'll rent this. And there it was. I mean, we didn't have to drive anywhere. I mean, just instantaneously before us. And so we live in a day and age, as trite as that illustration is, it is a picture of the marketplace, a marketplace that has totally eliminated from much of our life what, what we have known as delayed gratification. If you want it, you can have it. Who needs to cultivate patience when whatever book, whatever move? movie, whatever video clip, whatever game, even in some respects, the groceries that you want or or the dinner that you want from a restaurant is literally a click away. But here's the truth. Even in the midst of, of our commodified society that has eliminated patience or the need for patience, Uh, For for you and for me, much of life is not like ordering a book from Amazon on your Kindle. Much of life is not like streaming a a movie on Netflix here. Most of life, the, the aspects of life, the deep aspects of life that actually matter, you cannot double click to get your desired outcome from it. Now, this bleeds over to our spiritual life because many of us in our spiritual life, we live in this instantaneous access to whatever we want that bleeds over. And there are many of us that think of God in this kind of way, that if we say the right prayer, if we do the right thing, if we double-click spiritually then God must grant to us what we feel and assume must be in his will. Last night I was flipping through the television about 10.30 or so, right before I was going to go to bed, and there was a pastor that was on television, and I'm not going to mention his name, but as I was watching Joel Osteen preach last night, (laughs) it struck me, because he just seems to be, and I, I mean this sincerely, he seems to be such a, a, a kind person. And praise God for kindness in our society. I, mean, I don't know this person, I don't call this person, I don't text this person. But, but as it struck me, as I was listening to him preach again, and, and, and years of, of listening to clips of him preach, that you could just leave that sermon, leave that church thinking that God is primarily concerned with making poor people wealthy, sad people happy, and insecure people self-confident. And that God solely exists to make you a happy person. And if your happenings don't lead to happiness, then All you have to do is name your happiness, claim your happiness, and that God in his sovereign rule must grant you whatever you want. And it seems to me that this is spiritually so dangerous and it it is so wrong to the very essence of what James is talking about here. Uh, At the end of the day, these Christians... In that first century world, they actually were persecuted. They actually were poverty-stricken. They actually were waiting on God to do something in their midst. 
And they couldn't just claim wealth. They couldn't just claim victory. They couldn't just live in the sense. And God is going to grant their wishes. And it's this reminder that we must have that God is not primarily concerned with granting our wishes. He is not primarily concerned with your happiness. He is much more concerned at the very essence of who he is with your holiness and conforming you into his image. This is who he is, and this is the claim that he has upon your life and my life, and the growth into Christ-likeness oftentimes is delayed gratification. There's some of us that will not receive that answer to prayer that we so desire to receive. The thorn will not be removed. The healing will not come this side of heaven. And we walk with it as Paul walked with it, even as Jesus walked with it. And as we, in our weakness, walk this side of heaven, he is strong because he is our confidence. He is our security. He is all we need regardless of our circumstances. This is the farmer's example. Will you trust God with what you cannot control? And so much of your life and so much of my life are not double clicks away. The farmer cannot force the rain to come down in the drought. He cannot, the farmer, no matter how faithful he was in his daily quiet time, that farmer cannot stop the rain from falling in the midst of the flood. It is out of his hands, and much of your life and much of my life is out of our control. This isn't fatalistic. This isn't saying that your decisions don't matter. Of course there are consequences for your decisions. Yes, there are things that are in our control. Yes, but much of life is not a double click away. Much of life is out of our achieving, out of our doing, out of our plotting, out of our intellect, out of our ingenuity. And verse 9 reminds us that when things are out of our hands, there is a temptation to grumble against one another because we can't control the situation. And that's the temptation that you have. That's the temptation that I have. What does James say? When you are tempted to grumble with one another as you're waiting upon God to move in your life, this side of heaven or in heaven, you, you will be tempted to sin in the meantime. You'll be tempted to try to speed up the process. Well, don't. What does James say? Because the Lord is coming back in verse 7. Notice how he grounds this holy waiting upon God in the second coming of Christ. Well, when is that going to happen? Well, you don't know. I don't know. Look in verse 9. It says he repeats the motivation. The judge is coming back. There was this holy anticipation that God is coming as the victorious king, and he has promised that he is coming back in his second coming. I have no idea when that is. I spend none of my time trying to connect the eschatological dots, trying to say, well, this is happening in Israel, this is happening in Europe. It is just outside of my purview, and I don't need to know when he's coming back, because Jesus himself has said, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. So even as we wait upon the Lord in the humanity of Jesus, he doesn't know in his sovereignty, certainly he does know as the triune God knows the time. 
but we don't, we don't have access to that, so we have to patiently wait upon the Lord, understanding that in the midst of the promise that he's coming back and the realization that he has come back, we must wait upon him, hope in him, understanding that at any time he could come back because his return will be at a time that we cannot expect it. This is the example of the patient farmer. Let's move through this passage here. Notice with me the portrait of a patient prophet. We'll do this quickly. Look with me in verse 10 because he doesn't, James, doesn't give us the name of a prophet. It's almost as if he says, I'm just going to throw out a prophet. You can just pick one of them. And we certainly can. He adds to the example of the farmer the patience of a prophet. We could think about the patience of Jeremiah, the, the steadfastness of Jeremiah the prophet. Think about the endurance of Jeremiah the prophet. He was called as a teenager, small village. This is what his family did. They didn't ordain him to the ministry, but they wanted to kill him. He goes to the gate at the temple on a feast day. He, he gives a message that the worship of, of his people is worthless. They try to kill him. They beat him. They stretch him. They put his limbs in stocks, and they uh, really torture this prophet. He begins to write his prophetic book, and, and the king, Jehoiakim, tears it to pieces, burns it up. You want to talk about a frustrated writer? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing all this down, Jehoiakim, he, he rips it up, he tears it apart, throws it into the fire. And, and what James says is, look to the prophet. And we can look at the other prophets, but just look at Jeremiah. Here is a reason to not lose heart. Here is the example of patience in the midst of suffering, endurance in the midst of opposition. He is faithful, Jeremiah. He, the prophet is faithful even in adverse circumstances. What do we learn? You're not going to have the adversity of Jeremiah. I mean, that... that most of us don't even begin to understand the difficulty because of, of the joys that we have, the religious liberty that we have, but understand that, that we should be aware that there are people that hear the example of Jeremiah in our world and they say, that sounds a whole lot like something that I could face as Christianity is illegal. That sounds a whole lot like what a family member has faced as they've been in jail because of their faith. We, we should understand of, of the global weight of passages like this, and we shouldn't just push them aside and say, that was then. Well, it is now across our globe that people face actual physical persecution and suffering when they name the name of Jesus Christ. So James says to them, look to Jeremiah. But he also says to us, now, now while you might not face that kind of physical persecution, there is no denying that it very well may be in your workplace that you face a, a difficult manager or a difficult boss. It might very well be that there's a contentious co-workers, that your personalities just do not jive together. Understand that God is with you. He is strengthening you in the midst of that adversity Again, it very well may be that it's health-related issues where, where you've gone to doctors, you've gone to specialists, and you know that something isn't right, and you're asking God for clarity of diagnosis, and you're waiting on that diagnosis. You're waiting upon him to provide just so, so you don't wake up in the morning hurting. Wake up in the morning feeling that, as if you're not, you're not at 60% any day. 
A good day is 70%. Maybe you're here and, and you, again, are at a place where, where you just feel as if everything isn't connecting. Have hope. God is with you. He is strengthening you in the midst of whatever your adversity very well might be. There, there are two portraits this morning. There's a portrait of a fa- fa- farmer, and there is a portrait of a patient prophet. Notice with me, finally, the portrait of a patient patriarch. Verse 11. We move from Jeremiah, who's unnamed, portrait of a a patient prophet. We move now to the patriarch, who is named Job. People attack Jeremiah. Circumstances attack Job. Satan asks for permission to tempt Job, to physically harm Job. God, in his sovereignty, says, you can, but you cannot take his life here. So you remember he loses his health, he loses his wealth in this instantaneous, horrific, uh, natural disaster. His wife says, curse the Lord, be done with it. His friends tempt him. They tempt him with pietistic words. They tempt him with spiritual sounding. Uh, Repent, Job. You've messed up, Job. Job says, "I I haven't. So there's this back and forth through the majority of the book of Job with his well-meaning friends giving advice to Job in the midst of this, but in the very end, Job is taken by God. And we so long to see at the end of chapter 38, 39, 40, uh, that God is going to once and for all tell him, this is exactly why all of this happened, Job. I'm going to tie it up with this, this neat bow. And God takes him on this astrological, zoological, biological exploration of him as the wise creator. He says, look up, look around. Who are you to ask? Who are you to question? And you remember we come to the end of Job chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. In the very end of the book of Job, Job says, you are God and I am not. This is the theodicy of Job. This is, this is the way that Job comes to the end and all of the difficulty that he goes through, all of the pain that he goes through. We're longing as we're walking through Job to get an answer because we long for those kinds of answers. We long for God to say, this is exactly why this has happened in your life. This is exactly why this has happened in your family situation here. But we get to the very end of all of Job's loss and ultimately what Job receives from God is the comfort I am God and you are not and that is enough what is Job's response to this Job's response to this as we look in verse 11 here is the Lord is compassionate and merciful now in your life and in my life there are going to be circumstances that challenge our patience. There, there are going to be circumstances that force us, and we're tempted to doubt. We're tempted to doubt two things about God. We're tempted to doubt that God is all-powerful, or we're tempted to doubt that God is good. If he would be all-powerful, then he would have stopped, and you can fill in the blank. If God is all-powerful, then he would have stopped 9-11. If God is all-powerful, then he would have stopped the Holocaust. If God was all-powerful, and you just fill in the blank with your personal 
difficulty, your personal pain, if God is all-powerful, he would have stopped it. Or we could say, if God is good, if he was actually good, if he was actually caring, if he was actually loving, then he would have, and then you would fill in the blank. And this side of heaven, all of us in this room are tempted to impatience as we long to see clarity. Why did you allow this? But as we get to the very end, as we look at Job, as we look at the prophet, as we look at a patient farmer, we come to the end where Job speaks for all of us, where he says, God is compassionate, he is merciful, and he's allowed this to happen. I can't reconcile that, but this is true. He is all-powerful, he is all-good, he is compassionate, he is merciful, he is God, you are not, that's enough. Do you remember growing up and Mr. Rogers would be on and then LeVar Burton would come on with Reading Rainbow? When I was in school, we would show in the library, or they would show in the library, these Reading Rainbow uh, shows, and they were just always engaging to me. LeVar Burton, you know, Star Trek guy, he, he would come on and he would give a book review of sorts. But what I always loved about it is he would come to the end of reviewing this book and then he would say something like this, but don't just take my word for it. And then I was a third grader, or I was a fourth grader, or I was a second grader, and then I would see second graders, and they would hold up their book, and they would talk about their book, and then he would say, this is what I learned from the book, and then there was another third grader, and every you know, ethnicity was on that show, Different ages, females, boys, they're all on that show. Don't just take my word for it. Do you know the name of Joni Erickson Tata? If you don't know that name, you need to know the name. She's a prolific speaker, writer, uh, Christian, 1967. She has an accident. She's paralyzed. And as she's paralyzed here, she is a quadriplegic. Last year, 2017, was the 50th year anniversary of her accident. And she tells a story of how she was responding to a young man by the name of Tommy. Tommy was 17 years old. And Tommy had a surfing accident where he broke his neck. And in that accident, he too would have the fate that she had for the last 50 years. He was facing a life as a quadriplegic. And so she begins to write, and she says this, Like Tommy, I was once the 17-year-old who wretched at the thought of living life without a working body. I hated my paralysis so much that I would drive my power wheelchair into the walls, repeatedly banging them until they cracked. Early on, I found dark companions who helped me numb my depression with scotch and cola. I just wanted to disappear. I wanted nothing more but to die. What a difference time makes. As well as prayer and heaven-minded friends and deep study of God's word, all combined, I begin to see that there are more important things in life than walking and having the use of your hands. I know it sounds incredible, she says, but I really would rather be in this wheelchair knowing Jesus as I do than be on my feet without him. What circumstances are you facing today? 
what difficulty is tempting you to impatience as you long for your timeline to be synced with God's timeline, or better stated, you long for God's timeline to be synced to your timeline in the midst of whatever you have faced, in the midst of whatever you will face, in the midst of what you are facing. He is compassionate. He is merciful no matter our circumstances because he works all things together for the good of those who love him or called according to his purpose. But don't just take my word for it. This week, when you're tempted to impatience, think about the portrait of a patient farmer. Patient prophet and a patient patriarch. They sing with one voice this course. He is compassionate and merciful, no matter what. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word, a word that speaks to all of our circumstances. But I pray today, understanding that there's a a host of stories, there are hundreds of stories that are represented in the sanctuary. And it very well may be that there's one person in this very room today who is just wrestling with life and circumstances and pain and sorrow and sadness and death and disease and depression and it's just all upon them even now. May your steadfastness undergird us in the midst of our faltering faith. May your compassion and mercy be close to us in the midst of grief and loss. In the midst of adversity and circumstances, may you undergird us with your sure consistency that you're an unshakable foundation that you do not change Lord let us look to you in the midst of what's all around us may may we hold on to you in the midst of difficulty may we cry out to you in the midst of our pain and may we hear you whispering to us maybe even crying out to us even today You are loved. I am merciful. I am compassionate. I am with you. I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. It's in your name we pray.